Welcome to the Cliff of Chance podcast, where our experts discuss pressing issues and trends faced by the business world today. I'm Charlotte Madden, a senior associate in the London Private Equity and Infrastructure team at Cliff of Chance. And I have with me today Alex Norrie, a partner in the London Antitrust Group, Emily Sawarf Poviak, a senior lawyer in the Paris Antitrust team, and Dmitry Slobodenyuk, a senior lawyer in the Dusseldorf Antitrust team. And the focus of today's podcast is foreign direct investment regimes. There has been an increasing trend by EU and member states towards reforming foreign direct investment rules in order to shield strategic industries from opportunistic acquisitions by foreign investors. And this is becoming increasingly relevant for financial investors across Europe, both in traditional PE and infrastructure as the scope of what is considered strategic is broadening into assets and sectors that financial investors typically look to invest in. Perhaps as an introduction, Alex, Emily and Dimitri, you can give an overview of these foreign direct investment regimes, the industries being targeted, and whether there's any commonality amongst the various regimes in Europe. Thank you very much, Charlotte. Indeed, it's true to say that there has been an increasing trend by the EU and member states towards reforming those regimes. But what's important to note is that whilst the coronavirus pandemic has in fact intensified consideration on this issue, there was in fact a global move by a number of national governments to tighten foreign investment control before the global outbreak. We will focus here on Germany, France and UK, which might be some of the main foreign investment regimes along Spain, Italy, but we mustn't forget that overall there are 14 jurisdictions out of 27 in Europe that have been adopting foreign investment regulation. With respect to the European Commission, as a matter of fact, it's interesting to note that as of March 2019, so more than a year ago, the European Commission published the Foreign Investment Screening Regulation, which established the first ever EU framework for the screening of foreign investment in the EU. But in fact, this framework is, in, is more aimed at creating a system of cooperation and exchange of information, and it will not replace the national foreign investment screenings and it will not aim at a full harmonization of the national control mechanisms. In fact, the European Commission is encouraging member states that already have a screening mechanism in place to make full use of the tools available to them, but it also encourages the remaining member states to set up a fully-fledged screening mechanism. Maybe a quick focus on France here on the 31st of December 2019, the French government, in fact, adopted a piece of legislation to implement a reform to an already existing foreign investment control regime. It has been significantly broadening the scope of the existing legislation and targeting new strategic sectors to include, amongst others, the supply of agricultural products, media sectors, quantum technology, energy storage, and even biotechnologies. Dimitri, on your side, would you like to give us a brief overview, maybe, of the German regime? Uh, yes, happy to do so. If you look at the German FDI regime from the historic uh, perspective, the regime uh, originally targeted a rather classic infrastructure. So, for example, energy grids, telecoms grids, or uh, water facilities, etc. And then suddenly, two or three years ago, the public perception changed, uh, basically due to 
two cases. The first case related to the acquisition of the German robotics manufacturer KUKA by the Chinese investor Midea. And the second case uh, was the, at the end of the day, failed acquisition of one of the German TSOs, 50 Hertz, by the Chinese state grid. The peculiarity of those two cases was that the German government did not have jurisdiction over those two cases, but this was exactly the reason uh, for the German government to tighten the German FDI regime. And there uh, were several amendments in the last two or three years. The German government, uh, for example, lowered the threshold for relevant investments from 25% of the voting rights to just 10% of the voting rights. Uh, then further industries were included into the scope of the German FDI regime, for example, media. Obviously, the Corona crisis accelerated the whole process. Uh, due to the crisis, the German government expanded the scope of application of the German FDI regime basically to the complete uh, pharmaceutical sector. And uh, we know that a further amendment will uh, come into force sometime uh, in the late summer 2020 or maybe in autumn 2020, uh, in which the German government will also include further industries into the German FDI regime, for example, nanotechnology, biotechnology, etc. Uh, and by the way, uh, those amendments which I've just mentioned are not time limited, so they will continue to apply uh, in the next uh, couple of years or maybe even decades. Uh, Alex, how's the situation in, in the UK? Thanks, Dimitri. Well, in the UK, we had for quite a while already a public interest intervention regime, which runs in parallel with the UK merger control regime. So essentially, transactions which are subject to the UK's voluntary merger control regime are susceptible to intervention by relevant government ministers where they perceive public interest issues to be raised by a transaction. And typically, these will be in three areas, either national security, financial stability, medium plurality, and broadcasting. There is no mandatory regime currently in the UK in relation to foreign direct investments. However, the UK is currently contemplating bringing in legislation which will bring into play a mandatory foreign direct investment regime, which will be standalone from the UK merger control regime. Uh, and draft legislation is expected this autumn uh, so uh, we should all watch this space. Alex, one, one follow-on question, just picking up on the UK element. For a number mm -hmm. of investors, uh, will be understanding how the rules will be applied following Brexit. Is there any visibility on this at the moment? Well, following, following Brexit, um, see the, for one, the UK will no longer be part of the EU and therefore uh, transactions with UK investors will be treated uh, as a, a foreign transaction, essentially, in the sense that uh, they will be subject to the um, foreign direct investment regimes in the various member states. Um, and uh, regarding the UK, um, the uh, UK will uh, apply its own regime outside, obviously, the foreign direct investment regulation, which Emily had mentioned earlier, so that it won't have to make uh, reports to the European Commission or indeed take into account um, comments from the European Commission in relation to any particular transactions it may be reviewing. Thank you. So, just having looked at an overview of the regimes, perhaps we can turn to whether the regimes are targeting particular types of investors. For example, 
Emily, in France, you'll be aware that they have one of the most conservative views of a foreign investor. Perhaps you can elaborate on the structure in France as against other jurisdictions? Yes, indeed, Charles. It is true that, in fact, the threshold is um, with respect to the material investment of acquisition relating on the fact that the investor is a non-French investor. So under the French foreign investment regime, a transaction will require prior approval as soon as there is acquisition of a controlling interest in a French entity by a non-French investor, obviously if such entity is active in a strategic sector. It's also the case if the non-French investor is taking part or full of a business division. The slight difference is that there's a third threshold, which is a 25% of votes in a French entity, this will be only applicable to non-EU and EEA investors, again, uh, if the French en entity is active in a strategic sector. What's worth noting here is that the French government announced on the 29th of April 2020 that the 25% threshold would be lowered temporarily to 10% of voting rights for non-EU EEA investors only when they are acquiring shares in a French-listed company. The applicable decree should be published uh, in July 2020. What's interesting is that even if a formal veto remains extremely rare in France, the Ministry of Economy issued an unfavorable opinion on the 31st of March 2020, opposing a proposed acquisition of a French startup that was specialized in the design and manufacture of light intensifier tubes, it was considered by a US-based acquirer. In fact, here the government encouraged French companies to make alternative offers over this French startup called Photonis. Is it the same case, Dimitri, in, in Germany? Well, in Germany, we have two types of FDI scrutiny. On the one hand, we have the so-called sector-specific scrutiny, which applies if a non-German investor purchases at least 10% of the voting rights in a German company, which is active in a defense-related uh, sector. I will not talk about this type of scrutiny in the podcast, because obviously the second type of scrutiny is much more important uh, from a practical perspective, and this is the cross-sectoral scrutiny, which applies if a non-EU investor purchases at least 10% of the voting rights in a uh, German company, and the German company is active in a certain critical industry. And if you look at the term non-EU investor, uh, then obviously the question arises, are there any particular investor groups which are targeted by the legislation? And you will not find an answer to this in the German legislation. But uh, if you look at the press coverage, at the public statements of the German government, um, you can say that the main concern of the German government are state-owned investors, in particular uh, from China, uh, and the legislation uh, does not target private equity investors uh, from the UK or from the United uh, States. I think uh, from uh, the UK perspective, just I think worth clarifying that uh, the regime is not specifically aimed at foreign investors, uh, that the driving uh, factor is that whether national security uh, issues uh, arise as a result of a proprietary transaction and therefore the identity or, or provenance of a, an investor 
is not necessarily the driving factor. Uh, but clearly, uh, in terms of sensitivity of the relevant sectors in which investments are made, the identity of the investors may heighten those uh, concerns and therefore may lead to uh, additional undertakings which might otherwise not be required of a UK investor, for example. Dimitri, I just wanted to pick up on one point you mentioned there on non-EU investors. How does this impact funds that are offshore non-EU domiciled, so Jersey or Guernsey, for example? This is a very good question, Charlotte, and I know that this question was discussed uh, within the German government uh, quite intensively, and I also know that uh, this has also been subject to discussion uh, between the German government and the European um, Commission, and uh, the view of the German government is as follows. Given that Jersey and Guernsey are only part of the customs union, but not part of the European Union, all private equity investors which are domiciled on the Channel Islands will be considered to be non-EU investors. Uh, now, obviously, this say the question will be res less relevant after uh, Brexit, uh, because after Brexit, we will not have to distinguish between uh, the investors coming from the Channel Islands or uh, from the UK, because after the transition period ends, all investors uh, from the UK and from the Channel Islands will be considered to be non-EU investors. But until the end of the transitional period, uh, the situation is as follows. Uh, UK investors are EU investors and investors from the Channel Islands are non-EU investors. And I think this is more or less the same uh, in France, isn't it, Emily? It's exactly the same. Thanks, Dimitri. Thank you both. That, that's very clear and understood for individual investors. I guess one question I had was around whether the consortium transaction into a critical infrastructure asset, but only some of the investors are regarded as foreign. Do all investors require consent or just the investors deemed to be foreign for these purposes? Charlotte, on this point, I think we, we can have a general position that is to say that uh, only the foreign investors will require consent. The thing is, um, it will be nevertheless subject to the suspensory conditions that will have been drafted in the SPA or the different binding agreements. So all the investors will have to wait until this condition is complete. Maybe what's worth noting with, with the French system and the notion of foreign investor, the reform has in fact uh, broadened the understanding of foreign investor and now considers the whole chain of control. So if a French investor is investing but has in its chain of control a foreign entity, it will nevertheless qualify as a foreign investment given there is a foreign entity in the chain of control. That's a very big difference compared to the previous regime. And this is a very interesting point, Emily, because it's very similar in Germany as well. So, for example, if you have a, an EU investor which has some non-EU entities in the investment chain, for example, some entities which are domiciled on the Channel Islands, then uh, this investor, which is uh, ultimately an EU investor, will still consider it, uh, be, uh, to be a non-EU investor for the, uh, uh, from, for the purpose of the German FDI regime. I think, Charlotte, 
just on your point on consortium bids, it's probably worth mentioning from a UK perspective, the um, Inmars Act private uh, transaction of last year when there was a consortium of, of Five Eyes uh, investors from the UK, the US and Canada. And, and that was subject to intervention by uh, Ministry of Defence from a national security perspective in relation to some of the contracts that Inmarsat had with the MOD in relation to satellite communications. Great, thank you. So where where you do have an investment into a sensitive sector in the UK or, or more broadly under other regimes across Europe and a filing is triggered, how long does it typically take to obtain approval under these regimes? And Emily, I think you mentioned that the regimes were suspensory. So what's the consequences of not seeking this approval prior to entering into a transaction? On this point, there is a, a phase one and phase two timeline that is applicable. In fact, uh, the first phase one timeline is a 30 business days, but as of the date of receipt of a request that is deemed complete. So the Ministry of, of Economy and Finance has a bit of flexibility to consider um, a filing to be complete or not before ticking the clock. Uh, after those 30 days, uh, if a further examination is decided and if uh, the investment has not been authorized, the minister has an additional period of 45 business days, this is a phase two, to provide the investor with a final decision. Uh, in such case, if a phase two is open, the final decision will either be a refusal or an approval, which may be subject to conditions. The, the main difference with the new regime is that if no decision, phase one or phase two, has been taken within the deadline, the application shall be deemed rejected, while previously it was deemed to have been tacitly approved. Dimitri, on your side, the timeline is a bit longer, I think. Yes, the timeline is a bit longer. The German FDI regime also distinguishes between phase one and phase two. Once the parties submit an application to the German Ministry of Economics, uh, the ministry has two months to decide whether to clear the case or to open an in-depth investigation. If the Ministry of Economics decides to open uh, an in-depth investigation, then it has four additional months uh, to decide to clear the case or to prohibit the case. Now, the peculiarity is that under the new legislation, the German government will have additional four months in complex cases um, in order to decide uh, how to deal with the case. So if you look at the overall timeline in Germany, uh, you could have up to 10 months of FDI proceeding in Germany uh, during which the uh, transaction cannot be closed. And this is obviously a way too long time period if you compare it to merger control cases, you might, might end up in a situation in which you have a straightforward proceeding uh, with the European Commission in relation to merger control, which is typically finished after uh, two and a half or three months. And uh, the investors could be stuck with the German government up to 10 months if the case is considered to be uh, a complex one. As mentioned, um, we, we need to obtain prior approval uh, and the penalties have been slightly increased for non-compliance with this foreign investment regulation or obtaining a clearance decision. In France, the maximum, the maximum penalty is the highest of the following amount. It is either twice the amount of the defaulting investment or 10% of the annual turnover of the target entity or even 
1 million euros for individuals or 5 million for corporate entities. It shall also be noted that criminal sanctions can apply. It's probably worth um, just me adding a UK perspective on timing to your question. Uh, the UK regime is very much tied to the merger control regime, so it runs in parallel with the typical merger control timetable of the phase one, phase two, phase, phase one typically being 45 working days, and phase two can be up to 24 weeks. And once the CMA has done its assessment on the competition side, then the Secretary of State typically has 30 days within which to make a decision. Thank you. That's, that's very interesting. And I think looking at the sort of impact of timelines being extended and the penalties, Emily, that you had mentioned by not obtaining the approval, investors may wonder whether there's an opportunity to have an informal discussion with the relevant regulatory authority or get a pre-clearance on a transaction. Is that feasible at all? In France, uh, we must admit that the French Ministry of Economy adopts a quite pragmatic approach and retains uh, informal discussions to be possible. Uh, there, is a, there is also the possibility to better anticipate the analysis of any contemplated investment, the possibility for the target company or the investor to submit what is called a written preliminary request to determine whether the investment is subject to prior approval. Thank you. So I think then moving on to in a scenario whereby an authority, are there remedies that can be imposed or is the decision simply binary, i.e. the transaction can proceed or cannot proceed? Maybe I can cover the question from the general perspective. And uh, I think here we have also to make uh, Say, to distinguish between merger control and FDI proceedings, in merger control proceedings, you would typically have structural remedies, i.e. the companies uh, would be asked to divest um, a certain part of the business. This is a bit different in FDI proceedings, at least in Germany. Here, the German government rather prefers behavioral remedies. Uh, give you an example. Uh, the companies could be asked to have uh, a German senior management, so senior management comprising only German citizens. Uh, the uh, parties could also be asked to keep the research and development uh, facilities in Germany, or another typical remedy would be uh, to uh, prevent the information, the flow of uh, critical information from Germany uh, to an entity which is outside of Germany. And obviously, these types of remedies are also accompanied by some further contractual provisions, for example, contractual penalties. But I would say uh, this is, in a nutshell, the typical pattern which the German government follows. And, Emily, I understood that the French government follows more or less the same approach, right? Yes, this is completely right, Dimitri. And one additional point may be uh, in France is that the ministry often imposed to receive an annual report from the investor explaining how those commitments have been uh, put into place and how they, uh, they are being uh, implemented. From the UK perspective, that, uh, the situation is similar. Uh, the uh, preference tends to be towards behavioral undertakings. So uh, in the Marsat uh, case, which I mentioned earlier, Undertakings were, were negotiated and they concerned the protection of sensitive information and the maintenance of strategic capability in the UK uh, in terms of the services to the MOD. Thank you. So it sounds like the behavioural remedies could be uh, quite broad but would be considered on a transaction-by-transaction transaction basis. 
I guess now just moving on to our very final question and a bit more of a practical question here around what can investors start doing so that they are well equipped to understand if a transaction might fall within the relevant regime, what it might mean for them and what information they might need to provide. And is this something that can be monitored independently from deals like merger control? If uh, I could take that uh, to kick off, Charlotte. Um, regimes are developing uh, as, as we speak. It's a real patchwork, but broadly speaking, the main drivers uh, tend to be consistent across the different jurisdictions. So I think it's investors need to be aware of relevant sectors those, so that if they are contemplating a transaction uh, in those sectors that are ready to assess the potential for direct investment implications. They also need to be aware of the uh, shareholding triggers because potentially uh, they might avoid uh, foreign direct investment controls if they limit themselves to certain shareholdings. Uh, equally, uh, they need to be aware of their existing portfolios in terms of their operations and activities because um, well, they won't just impact on uh, acquisitions but also disposals if, if one is, is seeking uh, an exit. So those issues will need to be considered and factored into any transaction timetable well in advance and with the merger control timetables that, that will be run in conjunction uh, in any particular transaction. Uh, and also worth bearing in mind that in terms of timetable, because of COVID situation, a number of regimes are now taking longer to process applications and clearances. It's important also to identify political risks in, in any of these transactions and uh, where appropriate to engage with relevant stakeholders, both public and private. Uh, and also worth bearing in mind that evolving regulatory landscape uh, developments are continuing across other member states, but also the EU itself is developing other uh, legislative proposals. For example, the EU white paper on, on levelling the playing field as regards foreign subsidies, which was published uh, a few weeks ago, is also going to have an additional uh, impact on transaction and add a further layer of complexity and, and additional approvals, both at the European Commission level, but also potentially at the member state level. Great. Thank you, Alex. It certainly seems like it's um, an area to watch this space as we look through the evolving regimes, sort of taking more structure over the coming months. So thank you very much, Alex, Emily and Dimitri, for these insights. Um, it's been very helpful to have this overview. You have been listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast by visiting cliffordchance.com and following us on LinkedIn.